If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we started a new series called The Blessed Life. What we're doing is we're exploring what's called the Beatitudes. So in Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus' most popular sermon. That's the beginning of it. It goes through Matthew chapter 7. I encouraged you last week to spend some time uh, reading through the entire sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and maybe you weren't able to do that, but today, hopefully, um, if you weren't able to do it last week, maybe today you can find some time to do that. Uh, but this is the preamble, this is the introduction to uh, Jesus' most popular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what's known as the Beatitudes. Every single Beatitude, there's eight or nine of them, depending on who you ask. Uh, there's eight or nine of them, but every single Beatitude begins with the word blessed. And we talked about how to appropriately translate that word last week, and it's imperative that we understand that, especially as we dive into these, because we don't want to have a, a, you know, an inaccurate understanding of what the word blessed actually means. This comes from the Greek word makarios. We talked about that last week, and it is appropriate to translate the word makarios as the word blessed. Um, other renderings, maybe you have a Bible that actually translate it, translates it as the word happy. Okay, I told you last week, you know, you can scratch through that and use a different word. And I want to explain a little bit better why I mentioned that last week. Okay, in the context that you and I are living in, right here in America, in our culture, in our context that we live in, when we think of happiness, we think of happenstance. Basically, our happiness is dictated and determined by the circumstances that we're walking through. So many of you, you woke up this morning, and if you walked outside, um, you knew that it was gray, it was cold, it was wet, and you probably didn't feel emotions of happiness. The circumstances of the environment dictated how you felt. If you would have woke up this morning, you would have walked outside, and it would have been a you know, super cool and crisp day, like 70, 75 degrees, the sun was shining, your body would have responded a little bit differently to that, because again... Your circumstances dictate and determine your happiness. I use the illustration of our kids. If our kids are acting right and appropriate, oh, well, then we're happy. If they're playing well together, well, if they start to act out and do things that they know they're not supposed to do, well, again, that shifts the way that we respond. So simply because the context that we live in um, sometimes dictates and determines how we feel, I don't want you to think that this word happy, though it's a proper translation, um, means the same thing that it does to us in our context today. Okay, so the definition I gave you last week um, actually talked about how this is a joy that sorrow and pain and suffering can't strip away. That's the word happy. Okay, that's what this word happy in Scripture would actually mean. Um, so we, we said you can translate it as the word blessed. You can translate it as the word happy. And we even said that a more appropriate translation would be to, to be approved by. And I gave you the illustration that if, you know, if Kayla and I were still engaged and I was seeking um, the blessing of her family to marry her, to ask her hand in marriage, um, I would go to her father and I would seek that blessing. And he would give me that blessing based on my character. That's what he would do. He would say, you know what, your character is one that I've watched, I've, uh, I've, I've seen, and based on the way that you are uh, you know, and, the, and what I've seen, I'm going to give you my approval uh, to, to marry my daughter. Um, so long story short, that's kind of what this word Bless actually means. Now, last week we talked about how it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're the ones who will inherit um, the kingdom of heaven. So it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word, poor in spirit, um, as you recall from last week, just means that we're spiritually destitute. It means that in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer 
God. And I know that sounds super depressing because some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we look in the mirror each and every day and we think we have a whole lot to offer God. We have a whole lot to offer the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is, you know, happy, happier are those, blessed are those, the approved are the ones who recognize that they are actually poor in spirit, that they don't have anything to offer God. They're spiritually bankrupt. They're fully dependent on God for all things. I even gave you this definition last week, that poor in spirit it just simply means that we have a consciousness of our emptiness, that we have a consciousness of our emptiness, that we, and in and of ourselves, don't have anything to offer God, and that we can't obtain our own salvation through, through um, our own individual works. So that's what uh, we talked about last week. This week we're going to shift to the second beatitude that's found in verse 4. And it's going to be a bit sobering today, if I can be honest with you. Um, this is one that I think is the strangest of them all. It's probably going to be the hardest one to teach on. But at the same time, if we'll allow it, it will be the one that we walk away from that will probably spiritually form our lives more than the others. So... It says this in verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now think about what the, the Bible is saying here, what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you read that the way that I read that, you have to be thinking this is a really strange way of articulating something to a group of people who are following you that you sat by a hillside and you began preaching a sermon to. It's a very strange way of saying this. Think about what he's saying. Happy are those who are weeping. And, and immediately out the gate, you're thinking, well, that sounds like a paradox. That doesn't sound like it could be true. That doesn't sound well, you know, like what some, something that you and I would naturally receive. Happy are those who are weeping. Blessed are those who mourn. It sounds absolutely ridiculous on the surface, if I can say so myself, but what I want to do this morning is I want to dig into the depths of this a little bit. In fact, as we dig into the depths of this text a little bit, what you're going to see is there's two things that should happen. When we read this text, blessed are those who mourn, for they're the ones who will be comforted. There's two things that should happen. First, we sh there, there should be some liberation that happens here. We should be liberated. Second, we should be convicted. So why should we be liberated? What, what liberating factor comes from this uh, verse, well, blessed are those who mourn. What this means is that we should be liberated from the idea that we have to walk into church on a Sunday basis with a perpetual grin on our face. Because Jesus is knocking that off the rocker, isn't he? He's simply saying that's not the way that you're supposed to live your life where you, you, you masquerade yourself like your, your life is well put together and you come before a body of believers and you want to show them that you have no problems in your life, that everything in your life is, is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing and that you're well put together. He's knocking this off. He's freeing you from that kind of lifestyle. And let's be honest, church family. Most of us grew up in churches where that's exactly what we had to do. We grew up in churches where if all hell was breaking loose in our home, we still showed up on Sunday morning and we act like everything was going good. And the Lord is simply saying, man, you can be liberated from that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll find comfort. But the second factor of this is that it's convicting. Why is it convicting? Because it says right here that although we mourn, we typically, in and of ourselves, mourn the wrong things and we mourn them in the wrong way. What Jesus is not saying is, bless are those who shed tears at Lifetime movies. 
You might think that's what he means, but that's not what he means. Blessed are those who, you know, shed tears and cry at Hallmark movies. He's not saying, he's not saying blessed are those who pitch a fit when their finger gets pricked at the doctor's office. Okay? He's not saying that at all. So he's saying blessed are those who, who mourn, but we have to mourn the right things in the right way. And then if we do that, we shall receive comfort. We shall receive that deep joy that doesn't change regardless of our circumstances. So the question on the table this morning is what are the right things that we ought to be mourning? What does Jesus have in mind here? This morning we're going to jump into the deep end and then once we get into the deep end we're going to swim into the shallow end. Okay, That's kind of how we're going to approach today. So we're going to, we're going to jump into the deeply spiritual and we're going to swim kind of to the deeply practical. Make sense? So you're going to have to bear with me on the front end and when we get to the back end I think you'll be, okay, so we're going to look at this from a deeply spiritual level, and then we're going to see it from a more basic level. Let's begin with a deeply spiritual level. When he says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, what does he mean by the word mourn? Listen, mourning is the emotional counterpart. It's the emotional response to someone who is poor in spirit. When you recognize that in and of yourself you have nothing to offer God, when you realize that in and of yourself there is nothing you can do to earn and achieve God's gracious favor, when you recognize that you are spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt before God, the natural spiritual response to that is that we should lead, that should lead us into a place of mourning. So there's two specific things that we ought to be mourning. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, those of us who call ourselves Christians, these are things that we ought to be mourning. Number one, we should mourn the sins of others. We should mourn the sins of others. This afternoon, or maybe even last night, if you were to turn on your TV, or if you did turn on your TV, and you just watched 10 seconds of the national news, you already know the emotions that are going to come up to the surface of your life. You can already feel it. If you were to scroll through Instagram and watch what's going on in the world around us, it would not take long to convince you that sin is running rampant in our world. One quick 10-second view of the local news or even the national news will show you that our world lacks integrity. It's a world full of injustice. It's a world full of cruelty. We live in a world that is completely inundated with racism and selfishness and violence. And it, it would not take me long to convince you that that's the world in which we live. It doesn't take much to see that this world around us is completely broken. So when you pile this brokenness onto the consciousness of sinful man, what it does is it elicits a negative response out of him. And many of you, you already know what I'm talking about. The moment you see some of this or encounter some of this, something that you don't agree with or you don't like, all of a sudden you got this negative energy that explodes out of you. See, sinful man, no matter how religious he may be, responds to condemnation with condemnation. Sinful man, no matter how religious he may be, responds to prejudiceness with prejudiceness. That's what he does. Our natural response to sin in the world is to respond with sin of ourself. 
That's what we do. But those who belong to Jesus, Jesus is saying, ought to respond differently. Their response should be that we mourn the sins of the world. What we can't do this morning is mistake our madness as mourning. You follow me? Some of you watch the news and you get mad. You get angry. And some of that's justified because we should have a righteous anger towards things that are happening in the world. But what Jesus is talking about here is does that madness ever turn into mourning where you're weeping and wailing over the sins of other people around you, weeping and wailing over the sins of this world. You remember how the psalmist said it in Psalm 119, verse 136? He said it like this. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not obey or keep your law. The psalmist is simply saying, I am mourning the sins of other people. When I look around me, I see a community of people who are not following your law. I see a group of people who are just, just, just falling prey to sin, one sin after another sin after another sin. And because of that, my eyes are shedding streams of tears. I'm mourning the reality of the situation. It's the same thing that Jesus did in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. He wept over the sins of the world. It says when he drew near. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, it says he wept over it. The question is, is why did Jesus weep over the city? Because when Jesus looked at the city, the people in the city were rejecting him. And that led his heart to a place where he mourned the sins of other people. I want to ask you quickly this morning, church fam, when is the last time I didn't ask, I'm not asking when's the last time you were mad at the sin of the world. Okay, all of us can experience that emotion. When is the last time that you mourned the sin of others? When is the last time that you found yourself flat on your face before a holy God, just mourning and weeping because of the sin of someone else? One of the most vivid images that comes to my mind when I think about this verse takes me back to a moment or a season when I was in college at Georgia College and State University. When I was there in Milledgeville, I lived with two of my best friends, or still some of my best friends to this day. And uh, there was a segment of my life where I had drifted away from God and I was kind of living in the ways of the world. I wasn't kind of living in the ways of the world, I was living in the ways of the world. And I remember one night taking out my Bible. I never really, I tell my wife this all the time. Like even when I put my head on my pillow almost every single night, the Spirit of God never let up on me. I, I went to bed every night just convicted and convicted to the core about the lifestyle that I was living. So I tell you all this because one night I decided, okay, I'm going to pick up my Bible and I'm just going to read it. And I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't even know if I was looking for anything. But I picked up my Bible, started reading it there at the kitchen table in my apartment. And man, God just broke me. He just broke me. And right there at the table, I repented of my sin. I started confessing my sin. I sat down with my roommates and told them I was done with this lifestyle. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. And I, I petitioned and challenged them to join me in that, in, in that. I didn't want them to live this lifestyle anymore either. It was so overwhelming that I decided the best thing for me to do was just to go home. Like, I don't need to stay in this environment. Just go ahead and move back home or at least go back home for the weekend and I'll never forget driving through Gray, Georgia from Milledgeville to Winter Robins. And back then, Gray wasn't like it is today. There was literally like a Dunkin' Donuts, a gas station, and a McDonald's right there on the main highway. And I remember going through uh, the town of Gray, which is about halfway between Milledgeville and Winter Robins. 
And I was so burdened by my roommates and the sin that they were wrapped up in that I remember pulling into that McDonald's. I walked into the McDonald's, into the bathroom, into the bathroom stall and got on my knees and just wept and begged God to watch over them, to call them back home, to work in their hearts, to show them you know, that they're living a life of sin, and just begged and begged and begged. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> you're, you just told me that you got on your knees on a McDonald's floor. Who cares where in McDonald's? On a McDonald's floor, period. Much less a stall in the bathroom. I know you're thinking that's disgusting. But here's the deal. I was so moved and disgusted by the sins of other people that I didn't care where I got on my knees. And the question I have for you is, when is the last time you've been so moved and disgusted by the sin of someone else that you literally pled and begged and wept and mourned before God that he would move in their life in such a way that only he could? Church family, before anything can happen in the lives of other people, you and I sometimes are the agents he wants to use to petition him for that particular cause. And we've got to have a heart that loves Jesus and loves other people so much that we're willing to go to whatever environment and get on our knees and beg him to move in their place. So we have to be a church that mourns the sins of other people. But there's a second thing we should mourn. Not only should we mourn the sins of others, but we should also mourn the sins of self. We should mourn the sins of self. You know what I find so ironic and so interesting? Is it so easy for me in my humanity to see the sin that's outside of me, but it's so difficult for me to see the sin that's inside of me. You guys know what this is like. I mean, we do this. We get on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or we watch the news, and we get so bothered by what's going on in the world around us that what do we do? We copy the link and we send it to all of our friends in our contact list. You have people in your inbox right now that are sending you videos that are depressing. I want to challenge those of you who do that before you ever push send, before you ever call that person and vent about what's happening in the world. Take a quick second and say, Lord, before I talk about and complain about the sin that's outside of me, first, let's deal with the sin that's inside of me. What's going on in here that you want to correct? Why is this moving me in this way, and it's not moving me to a place of mourning? Like, let's deal with self before we start dealing with others. It's very easy to point out the sin that's going on around us. It's very difficult sometimes to point out the sin that's going on inside of us. The blessed life is a life that's so bothered by, this, by sin that it leads us to a place of weeping. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. What does that mean? If there is no sorrow, there is no comfort. If there is much sorrow, then there will be much comfort. It's like the Puritan preacher said, until sin is bitter in our life, Christ cannot be sweet. If you want Christ to be sweet, we have to go to a place in our lives where sin is a bitter taste towards our tongue. See, the only way that we'll ever mourn the sin of self is when we begin to take note of how great an offense our sin is against God. If we, if we approach our sin as trivial, uh, it's just a little thing, then what we'll do is, is we'll never recognize the, the full extent of the weight that it carries before a holy God. 
even that little thing put Christ on the cross. And we have to be a people who recognize that God grows greater as we become more and more aware of the sin in which we have committed. You should weep, the Bible says, over the sins that are against him, the sins of the world and even the sins of self. And you're probably thinking, because I know some of you more manly men, you're thinking in this room today, well, Trey, I don't really weep at a whole lot because weeping is a sign of weakness. It is a sign of weakness. It's an emotional counterpart to being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is weakness. It's admitting that before God, I have nothing to offer him. And the response to having nothing to offer God is that I begin to mourn. So 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, your mourning is indeed a sign of weakness. And that is exactly where God wants you to be. Remember what the scriptures say. God's power is made perfect in your, in your weakness. His power is not made perfect in your strength. His power is made perfect in your weakness. When we come to the grips or come to grips with the reality that we are weak and we have nothing to offer God, it's only then that we can tap into the wonderful power of God. So first, as we dive into the deep end, we have to understand that Jesus wants us to mourn the sins of others. But second, Jesus wants us to mourn the sins of self. And now what I want to do is spend a moment swimming in the shallow end. I want to talk about this on a very basic level, okay? So this is where for some of you, you're going to really tune in. I think you should have tuned in at the first part, but some of you will tune in more here. Because what you realize in your life and what I realize in my life is that mourning is a very real part of life, isn't it? There are moments where you mourn, where you weep, where you cry, that are really outside of your control. It's an inevitable part of life. We mourn loss. Some of you have experienced that. We talked about loss even this morning. We mourn loss. We mourn divorce. We mourn changes in life. As things change and shift and we don't understand them, we, we mourn those. We, may, we mourn changes in gas prices, right? Anybody want to give me hallelujah? But there's so many things that cause our heart to grieve. And as Christians, we don't escape pain or suffering. And some of us bought into this idea of Christianity thinking, oh, if I become a Christian, that means God's going to always bless me and there's never going to be pain and suffering in my life. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, I would argue this, that Christians should experience more pain and suffering than all others. Temporarily, here on this earth, God uses this pain, he uses this suffering to grow us and to mature us into his image. So what I want to do real quick today is I want to approach really three common misconceptions that we have uh, in relation to our pain, in relation to mourning, in relation to suffering. The first thing I want to talk about is this. We make the mistake of believing that good people shouldn't suffer. We make the mistake of believing that good people shouldn't mourn. In fact, one of the most popular questions ever asked is, why, do God, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? If you're honest, some of you have asked that very question. God, why would you allow that to happen to me, thinking that that's a bad thing and I'm a good person? Why would a loving God allow people that he loves to hurt? Why would a loving God allow people that he loves to experience pain, to experience suffering? I don't intend to be insensitive here. I really don't, but 
I want to answer it the way that I believe is honest. And sometimes honesty uh, hits us between the eyes in a really hard way, right? It's like a punch in the gut. Um, so I don't mean to be insensitive, but when we think about this question, uh, I do believe I have an answer to it. The reason that I believe we ask questions like this, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, or why would a loving God allow people that he loves to hurt, the, the reason I believe is be, we ask that question is because of this. We ask that question because we're spoiled brats. I say that sincerely, like we ask it because we are absolutely spoiled in every way. We genuinely believe that God owes us something. Every one of us. We believe that God owes us something. We think, well, I'm faithful to church. I'm faithful to give my tithe. I read my Bible regularly. I try to act decently. I treat other people with respect. Therefore, I should walk through minimal suffering and I should walk through maximum blessing. We think because of the way that we act, God owes us something. And this is a reminder of Hebrews chapter 11. You remember Hebrews chapter 11? It's known as the faith chapter in your Bible. There's a series of people for the first 34 verses that have acted in wonders of faith. And as a result of their exquisite faith, blessing ensues in their life. You have the life of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. You have all of them right there in Hebrews chapter 11. And when you read Hebrews chapter 11, the first 34 verses, what you learn is, man, these are some remarkable stories and they have fantastic endings. And secondly, we aspire to experience the same blessing that they experienced as a result of their faith. And what we do is we just stop there at verse 34 because that's the stuff we like. But let's read verse 35 through 40 this morning. It says this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That means that someone took a saw and cut their bodies right in half. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That doesn't sound like a sexy or a glamorous life, does it? That doesn't sound appealing at all. And then it says this, and all these, watch, though commended through their faith, the same faith that you see in Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and others is the same faith you saw in some of these people, but the result was much different. And it says this, he did not receive, they did not receive what was promised. The better way of translating that is they didn't receive what they thought was promised to them on this earth. They thought that they should receive a blessed life. They thought that they should have a life that was free from some of this. 40, since God had provided something better. You hear that? If, if you're walking through trial or agony or pain or suffering this morning, you can rest assured that God has something better. That this is not how it ends for you. That this is not how it ends for me. That there is something better that God is doing in us and around us. It says, for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is he saying there? The better is that he's working them out in their own salvation so that they can look more like Christ than they did before they walked through any of these things. See, no doubt these people didn't think life was fair to them. And sometime in your life, in my, time, my life, we also look at God and think, man, life is not fair to us. The same thing is true 
We walk through a series of pain, a series of trial, a, a series of suffering, and we, we just really think, God, you're not fair to me. Can I say this this morning? Thank God he's not fair. If God were fair, then you and I would be hopeless and helpless and without any chance with eternity in heaven with him at all because of the sin that we've committed. If he were fair, then you and I would be cast headlong into a literal place called hell where we would spend literally every single minute of all eternity in torture and pain separated from the goodness of Christ Jesus. Thank God this morning he's not fair. So we believe good people shouldn't suffer, but second, and I'm going to speed this up, we believe mourning means something is wrong. We think that when we're experiencing pain, something must be wrong. When we experience, you know, trial, something must be wrong. We walk through seasons of life, and we immediately think things like this. Well, what did I do? I mean, why do, why, I don't, I didn't do anything that I know of to deserve this. What did I do to deserve that, is God mad at me? Some of us will ask that question. Some of us will say, did I do something wrong? Look quickly at James chapter 1. Um, it's in the back of your Bible. I'll, I'll read it for sake of time. But James chapter 1 approaches this very topic. It says this in verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Hear that? Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. I have never to this day, I'm, I'm 41 years old, for all of those of, who are wondering, um, but in 41 years of life, I've never walked by anyone and said, hey man, what's up? How you doing? And they respond, brother, guess what? I'm experiencing a great trial. I love trial. I'm walking through trial. Man, I can't believe God would let me walk through this trial. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's face this trial together. I've never met a soul respond like that. In fact, some of you jumped when I did it because you're like, that's weird. <laughs> because we don't like trial. But what I have seen is I've seen people who have walked through trial and there seems to be this calm in their spirit. I've seen people who walk through trial, mentioned the McClure's last week, who walk through trial and there's just still this unabiding peace that they can't explain as they walk through the trial. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, real believers, mature believers who know that amid their mourning they will receive comfort. They're able to find joy in trial because they know that God will use this for something better, just like he did in Hebrews chapter 11. It says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I want you to understand this this morning. Anytime you feel tested, God is doing something to develop you. He's producing something in you. You feel a test of a trial? Well, he's developing you in some way. You feel a test of trial? Well, he's molding you and shaping you into his image. It's a blessing to walk through that trial because when you get through the trial, you're going to look more like him after the trial than you did before you walked through the trial. So there's a blessing there that James wants us to see. In the middle of the testing, God is developing something in you. Let me say it like this, church family, and this is going to hit all of us really, really hard. You need to hear it. God is more interested in your character than he is your comfort. He is more interested in your character than he is your 
comfort. He is always doing something to develop you into his image. This is what the Christian life is all about. And some of you are thinking, well, man, I wish they would have told me that before I got saved. I wouldn't have signed up for this thing. But that's what salvation and sanctification is about. You get in this so that you can look more like Jesus each and every day. He's restoring you into the original way that he created you. This is why James adds, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect, that word means mature, and complete, lacking nothing. So the next time you go before God or anybody else and say, man, I just want to be like a holistic human being where I don't lack anything, just remember, you're about to face trial. You're about to face trial because that's what it takes to mature you. Peter said it like this, bear with me. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy, joy ahead, wonderful joy ahead, hear that? Even though you most, m- must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Hear that? People watch you walk through trial, and through those trials, you're proving to them that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day, listen, when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. What did he just say? What is Peter saying? He's saying that the way you respond to trial by sinking your teeth in joy through that trial is a testimony before a watching world that you have something that they don't have because they can't respond to trial the way that you respond to trial. So you're a testimony to the watching world. What does this mean to us? God doesn't waste your pain. He won't waste it. He won't waste your suffering. He won't waste your trial. He will use it to bring himself glory and call other people to himself. So we think mourning means that something is wrong. And finally, this morning, we believe we know what's best for our lives. We believe we know what's best for our lives. We, we think we got it all under control. We don't need his help. We got this. In fact, the reason we get mad at God is because when something doesn't go the way that we had planned it, we think that God is doing something wrong in us. But God, that's not how I planned it. That's not what I wanted. And we think God's wrong for that result. Remember what Isaiah 55 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Only when we understand that his ways are higher than our ways will we find comfort in seasons of mourning. And he closes out this text on the back end, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Church family, where does comfort come from? Who's going to do the comforting if we're going to be comforted? It comes from Jesus. It comes from Christ. Jesus is the only one who can relieve our distress. Listen, it's only in heaven that comfort will be complete. Why? Because it's only in heaven that sin will be no more. And you and I as believers have so much to look forward to, to live a life for all eternity where sin is no more and our comfort is complete. Revelation says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there be be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. That's what we're talking about today. Nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have all passed away. And that is the day that you and I as followers of Jesus long for in our lives. 
Some of you, you walked in here this morning, and if I'm honest, you're carrying a weight that I, could not, I couldn't imagine or could not even explain. It's heavy. What you're carrying is heavy. Maybe you're walking through divorce. Maybe you're walking through loss. Maybe you're walking through uh, plans that you have had that have been completely unraveling over the past few weeks. I want you to hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's a verse you need to cling to. Cling, cling to as you walk through this trial. I was reminded of this poem, and I think it says it so beautifully. It says, Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust till sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength I never knew, nor dreamed till I was stricken that he could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow, drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good knows well when things annoy. We would not long for heaven if earth held only joy. Church family, God is using your current circumstance, your trial, your grief, your sorrow, your sadness to mold you into the image of his son. That is a blessing that when you get through this, you won't look like you did before you walk through it. You'll look more like him than you could have ever imagined. Let's praise God for the trials that he sends into the life of believers.